If primary care holds the keys to the kingdom of a much, much better health care system, what do we want to do? What are we equipped to do? What do we need to do to ensure change is possible and support it? Welcome to WIHI, an online audio talk show from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, offered bi-weekly and also for your later listening and convenience as a downloadable file via IHI.org and on iTunes. I'm your host and producer, Madge Kaplan. I'm also IHI's Director of Communications. So given the agenda out there right now, we could or perhaps we should be talking about primary care practically every waking minute. We're going to see what we can encapsulate in one hour, that's our WIHI time, that might help highlight the best ideas out there right now, but also maybe cut through a lot of the noise. So let me briefly introduce our guests. There are further details about each of them on the WIHI web pages, and I always encourage people to check that out. So I'm going to start with our Canadian friends and experts. Connie Davis is a geriatric nurse practitioner serving as faculty for IHI, Impact BC, and the University of British Columbia School of Nursing. One of her areas of expertise is improving interactions between clinicians, patients, and families. No small task and much needed these days. Welcome, Connie. Thank you very much, Matt. Terrific. Connie often works with Sheila Allison, a peer coach and patient advisor with Patient Voices Network in British Columbia, Canada. Sheila is active in a number of initiatives to improve what happens for patients in primary care. A lot of great stuff that you're working on. Welcome, Sheila. Thank you. It's great to have John Wasson on board, a physician and professor of community and family medicine and geriatrics at Dartmouth Medical School. John has been a central improver and thought leader and IHI faculty on redesigning primary care for years. Welcome, John Wasson. Thank you. And finally, Karen Boudreaux. IHI Senior Vice President and Medical Director for the IHI Continuum Portfolio, a family medicine physician. Karen has been working with other clinicians of late to sharpen efforts around primary care redesign. Today, Karen Boudreaux, often in the office, but not today. She's joining us by phone from California. Welcome, Karen. Hello, everybody. It's a thrill to be here. All right. Terrific. So, again, uh, welcome aboard, everybody. It's this WIHI. We're about to talk about primary care. Uh, keep your, uh, I don't know, what should I say, your hands at the ready on your keyboards. I was about to say your pen poised for questions and comments. We'll be uh, doing that uh, at the half-hour mark, more or less. So I'm going to start off by asking John Wasson to locate our focus on primary care right now in the context of health care reform and any other big, bold things going on. While this isn't just a U.S. phenomenon, attention to primary care, but uh, for a variety of factors, primary care has been especially lit up in the states right now. So, John, what are the expectations right now, and are they appropriate given the times we're in? Well, uh the expectations, as we all know, of primary care have been uh, very much on the front burner from policy point of view when you talk about uh, accountable care organization, medical homes, etc. And the thought is that somehow, miraculously, uh, these efforts with primary care physicians and other clinicians will uh, automatically lead to better quality and lower cost health care. Uh, unfortunately, everyone on this phone knows very well the 
group of obstacles uh, in front of us, uh, just to list a few. Uh, we all know that primary care physicians are leaving practice or going into concierge-type practice. They're certainly not distributed well. Uh, less than 20% of U.S. physicians are going into primary care now versus more than 30% in the past. And not surprisingly, now about a third of primary care physicians have to come uh, from international sources, which in essence beggars many of those countries. The educational establishment wants primary care, and recent uh, reports have come out saying that primary care should be paid more, 70% uh, of specialty uh, salaries compared to the current 55%. And all of this may move primary care forward. This, if we will, is sort of the ugly elephant in the room that I don't think we want to spend time talking about today, but we should at least uh, remind ourselves that it is there and something to keep in mind. The purpose of today's call is to talk about the new potentials, the new opportunities, uh, the new hopes for primary care. Uh, when and if it moves from the current model of piecemeal medicine uh, toward results-oriented medicine that focuses on a lot of issues uh, outside of what we historically have thought of as the domain of primary care, issues such as behavior, function, social uh, support of patients. So that's our focus today, what we can call the new primary care what it means for patients and clinicians. Uh, I'm very excited that uh, we're going to have a discussion of the new role of patients, and I'd love to come back to that later on. But no matter how we call it, whether we call it new primary care or old primary care and new dress, it's going to require a paradigm shift, and that's what we'll be talking about today. Thank you so much. I uh, really appreciate that framing, um, John Wasson. And again, welcome aboard, those of you who are still uh, kind of getting yourselves situated. Uh, pull up a chair and a glass of water, uh, coffee, and we're glad you're here. Karen Boudreaux, out in California today, uh, <laughs> in, prom in promoting this program, I did promise participants that you and John and others would take what often seems like a list of things to implement or the latest thing uh, that you maybe can apply for or do or to change and maybe put it in some perspective. I think that's what John is kind of leading us to about what is the sort of transportation, excuse me, transformation, transportation might be part of it, transformation <laughs> to be uh, keeping in mind here. Um, I think I asked you, you know, sort of how do you keep your eye on the, on the true north? And again, we only have this one hour, this one program but what are some of your thoughts on that? Well, thanks, Madge. And, and uh, picking up on where John started, I think um, I would say that, you, you know, universally primary care physicians and practices work very, very hard and are dedicated to their patients and want to provide care that is satisfying and high quality and, and meets everyone's needs. But certainly the forces supporting uh, the status quo are pretty strong. Um, our current conditions, especially payment systems and physician shortages, tend to reinforce that sort of reactive visit-based, one patient at a time care. Um, if I sort of described my idea of True North um, for for the ideal 
primary care system, it would be the perfect balance of three things. The first one is um, comes from one of John's famous sayings, actually, about uh, patients being able to get exactly the care they want and need exactly when and how and where uh, they want and need it. So that's the first one. The second one would be primary care practitioners and team members, not just physicians, but certainly physicians as well, being able to say, I love my work and I feel that I can meet those patient needs in a way that doesn't make me, my family, or our practice crazy. And then third, that our society, that our greater populace um, gets healthier in a way that we can afford without negatively or disproportionately affecting other critical social obligations. So to me, that's, that's my personal vision of, of, of True North. Uh, it sounds a little bit like things that we talk about at IHI all the time, like the triple aim, um, which is better health for population, better experience of care for individuals, and um, impacting uh, and improving the per capita cost of care. But on a personal level, it really encompasses those three things. Karen, uh, just a kind of quick follow-up. What do you think trips uh, folks up the most? Uh, if Let's say uh, there's a lot of people who've joined today that really do share these sort of underlying principles and are trying to stay kind of anchored to them and then sort of see a whole sort of slew of things uh, that hopefully uh, kind of fit within that, you know, design. What do you think trips people up the most as they try and sort of keep it all straight? Well, I think the first thing that, that trips people up really is is trying to do this in the midst of, of actually providing care for patients. So the you know, the forces that keep people on the proverbial treadmill of, of seeing enough patients to meet their expenses and to make their income and to meet all the obligations that they have to health plans and to uh, regulators and to others. Um, feels like they're they're already falling behind just trying to do that, and the idea of trying to fix the system while you're running that fast is very daunting. Um, I think that practices that have been able to get started with a great amount of will and effort and and extra energy um, do begin to find once they once they can fix one small thing that makes perhaps part of their practice more efficient or or work a little better, that they then can begin to build momentum to tackle the next problem. But I think it's really kind of um, uh, holding your nose and jumping for the first time and, and working towards some improvement goal that is probably one of the toughest hurdles. Okay, thanks, Karen Boudreau. We're talking about the new order for primary care, mostly in the U.S., but not only on this edition of WIHI. Mm -hmm. You were just listening to Karen Boudreau and before her, John Wasson. So, Connie, Canada, what can you tell us? <laughs> Connie Davis, what parallels can you draw between the changes needed for primary care in Canada and the U.S.? And are they more similar than folks might expect, even with very different payment systems? Yeah, thank you, Madge. Uh, yeah, they are quite similar. Actually, I think the, even though Canada does have a single-payer system, of course, out of um, the taxpayer-paid uh, funded system, most physicians, most family physicians are still fee-for-service in practice. There are community health centers in Canada, and that's a, a growing movement, but that primarily it's still fee-for-service. 
And so the health care funding certainly influences care, but what really matters in great primary care is that, as Karen said, there's this practice team that's prepared and proactive and forming relationships with patients and family and friend caregivers who are really ready to be in that partnership role. So I think that's the in the best case scenario, there are communities that are also, you know, interested in pursuing better health and community organizations that are partners in care. So who's sort of setting the table, would you say, or what's kind of setting the table or providing the momentum uh, for change in primary care? I mentioned that you work a lot on improving, improving interactions between patients and providers and families. Is this uh, kind of a whole new mindset, or are you building on things that have been around for a while? I think fortunately in Canada there's been a pretty strong ethic of public engagement and decision making and so that's certainly been a help but on the other hand um, having you know a um, a universal health care system can also make the public a bit complacent and take it for granted. And I think the health care debate in the U.S. actually shines a light on, on health care for Canadians and, and realizing what good they have in the system. I think the other thing that's really happening, and you know, both John and I um, do mostly you know, geriatric care, is that the, as the population ages, we have a group of people who are used to being very involved. They're involved in decision-making. They're used to reading consumer reports. Um, they're, you know, asking to be better and be more um, equal partners in care. So I think that's a big influence right now. Okay. And in that generation is also the one that's caring for elderly uh, parents, and so that helps too. All right. Thank you very much, Connie Davis. Sheila, let me get you in here from, with Patient Voices Network. Uh, it's it's fascinating just to even read on paper all that you're doing uh, as a patient leader and activist and helping patients and providers sort of weigh in. Uh, tell us about your work and kind of what you're discovering. So, well, I'm I'm so enthusiastic I can hardly contain myself. <laughs> um, <laughs> That'll kind of counteract the beginning with John's sober uh, analysis. But go ahead, Sheila. Yeah. So, well, it is it is really exciting because, um, of course, I'm I'm retired now. I turned into a golden oldie, and I can focus my attentions on things that I find inspiring, and and I find this very inspiring. And I I do have a healthcare background. But uh, what I find with um, being a patient advisor with Patient Voices Network, it is it is such a positive movement that I don't uh, I don't feel like an act activist. I truly feel like an advisor because I think Patient Voices Network patients are feeling so supported and so welcomed that we are um, really participating in a very positive way as an advisor. And, I mean, not to have total rose-colored glasses on, of course, total patient involvement is still um, a mystery to many people in many ways, but it's moving forward in a very positive way through PVN, I believe. And I think it differs. Having Patient Voices Network, I think, is, is just so leading edge. It only started, I think, about a year and a half ago. And it it's, differs a lot from the common role where patient inclusion um, has been in Canada sporadically and here and there a lot over the last dozen years or so, especially, but more on family advisory councils, yep. where now with patient voice, and that was kind of like a first step. Now with Patient Voices Network, I think the bar has really been raised that our participation now through Patient Voices Network support is at the system level, at the community level, and of course with the peer coaching at the individual level as well. 
and uh, the real the real thing for me that is helping patients participate at all these levels and with such positiveness and enthusiasm is is the fact that patient voices network is providing education and training and support to patients and it gives them a, a forum of support that that provides a confidence to be able to bring our stories to decision-making tables and to feel to feel supported and welcomed to share our experience and in our ideas from the consumer perspective so tell me Sheila thank you so much tell me kind of give me an example so we can sort of get grounded here what what kinds of things are you or patient voices network what are you influencing in terms of what happens with primary care can you give a couple of examples or even so, or well I think with with that uh, there's a lot happening in primary care and so a lot of different tables where patients from patient voices network are being represented and I think one of the initial um, uh, things that, that kicked it off for a lot of people was last spring the, um, there was an attachment and integration forum where all levels of healthcare providers from the Ministry of Health Physicians, um, Impact BC were involved and there were 10 patients from Patient Voices Network representing areas all over the province were invited to attend. And this was really almost, I think, the first time that physicians had actually invited patients to the table. And it was an extremely positive experience from everyone's perspective. The patients, um, we as patients, felt welcomed when we made comments, we were listened to. And I think particularly for those of us patients who don't have a health care background like myself, it was a real eye-opener as to where the providers are coming from and the challenges that they face. So having that interaction between providers and patients at that level was, I think, just hugely informative in terms of uh, a starting point for really beginning to work together. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Con- thank you, Sheila. Connie, what, what, just quickly, what, where would you say, what, what is it that uh, primary care uh, folks or providers, physicians, what are they hearing? What, what do patients want? Well, you know, it's, it's funny because often healthcare professionals are very concerned that patients are going to ask for the moon and that they want everything. And I, I think when we bring people together as informed partners, that's truly not the case. I mean, you know, patients have a lot of experience in their own lives that, you know, they understand balancing budgets. And certainly all of us have had a patient in the past who's like been a CEO of an organization or a small business owner. And these are people who understand constraints. So when we can be transparent about the information, um, what we're experiencing at every level, um, it, it's a very reasonable, um, reasonable changes, reasonable suggestions are made. I think we know from research in shared decision making with you know surgical treatments, medical treatments, when given all of the information in an unbiased way, patients tend to choose less invasive, less expensive treatments. I think the same. We're finding the same goes for systems. When patients are informed and understand the constraints of the system, the limits, um, people can help us make much wiser choices and actually save us a lot of trouble designing things that don't work. Mm-hmm. Okay, thanks a lot. Again, this is WIHI. You're just listening to Connie Davis and before her, Sheila Allison. We're talking about primary care. John, I'm going to come back to you. You've described the endeavor as one of confidence building. Uh, I think you shot that in an email. Perhaps you, you have have said this in many other uh, venues, uh, confidence building among patients and providers. Can you talk about what you mean by that? 
Sure, let me make uh, two points about confidence building. The first point is what I'd like to uh, emphasize that uh, we just heard from Sheila and Connie. When I worked with the Canadian group uh, last year, the most exciting thing that I've run into in a decade was the experiment of putting primary care practices and patients together to solve uh, a problem, a very simple uh, problem of getting technology, uh, patient-centered technology used in the office. And I urge everyone who wants to see, uh, uh, learn about that practical application to go to idealmedicalhome.org and you can download a slide that the Canadians made uh, about patient assistance, how they actually not just sit in on meetings and help plan, but actually help implement technology, saving the office staff uh, and doctors time. So the confidence that results from that, the first level of confidence, is these patients are just incredibly good. They save a huge amount of time for the staff. They follow through. They make things happen. And conversely, the confidence that happens for the clinicians and the office staff grows exponentially as well because they see, you know, I don't have to do everything. I'm already so busy doing X, Y, and Z that I might not have ever done this, but with the patient working with us, we're able to really conquer a lot more. So that's the first level of confidence. Patients and and clinicians can become exceedingly confident in the skills of each other and the limitations of each other by working together on very clear goal-directed projects, not fuzzy talk time, but actually specific project time. The second level of confidence is actually uh, one in which the the clinicians and the patients themselves uh, have to work over time, and that is confidence in self-management. And that's another topic, but is so critical that we are now calling uh, for confidence as a vital sign. Mm -hmm. It's just so critical uh, in improving patient outcomes. So there are two levels of the word confidence. The first one building on Sheila and Connie and the Canadian experience talking about change in process improvement and the second term confidence in the actual interaction between patient clinicians and I'm sure Connie will go into that in more detail later. Yeah, uh, that's very interesting to refer to confidence uh, in self-management as a a, uh, vital sign which I I think that's a, a really powerful way of putting it. Karen, uh, back to you out there. You're uh, west, mm-hmm. you know, closer to Connie, actually. <laughs> Connie and Sheila, I su- suppose, out in California today. Um, so as you listen to all of this, it's so it's sort of interesting for me, you know, if I were to chart all this, because I think part of what you were also suggesting before is that uh, all this change, uh, there's any number of things that we could sort of tick off that people are working on in primary care right now. Uh, and at the same time having to do it all while you're sort of the other part of your brain or head or your feet are also seeing patients all day. Um, So I guess one question I have for you, are people getting help 
uh, given all that has has to change, it seems in some way inevitable. Uh, we're not going to kind of, nobody's going to be able to sort of bury their heads. Uh, maybe people can do concierge, and maybe people can drop out, drop out and drop off, as, as John was suggesting. So how do you not do that, and where do you get help? Well, I think there are actually a lot of avenues for help for primary care physicians um, and primary care practices. Um, you know, IHI has for many, many years worked in the in the primary care space, um, uh, going way back to the days of working with the Disparities Collaborative and the Chronic Care Initiative, um, moving right through until our current work with the Indian Health Service and others. Um, but I think at, a, at an individual practice level, um, some of the resources in terms of information, uh, the Patient-Centered Primary Care Collaborative is a, is a national um, voluntary collaborative of organizations all across the U.S. And, and I think increasingly Canada that are working on uh, medical home type transformation. And their website has um, a great deal of information about what's going on in various states. Certainly with the Affordable Care Act, there's also a lot of support for uh, transformative activities either around healthcare IT or uh, demonstration projects both within the safety net community health centers um, and at various state levels that are working on uh, improving uh, primary care through transformative activities. So there's work through what are called regional extension centers that are, are helping uh, local communities with um, with transformation and health IT, um, primary care societies, the American Academy of Family Physicians, the American College of Physicians, the American Academy of Pediatrics all have resources available as well. And then the National Committee on Quality Assurance, or NCQA, which is was the first organization to begin sort of formal certification processes for uh, for medical homes. Um, has a great deal of information on their standards um, at their website. Um, uh, other resources include TransferMed, which is, a, is a, a public resource that came out of the American Academy of Family Physicians' work on, on uh, redesigning primary care. So there's a lot out there. I think the biggest challenge is um, picking up that information in a way that you can begin to apply it and try it at home. So to speak. Exactly. Thanks, uh, Karen. And uh, just a reminder to everyone that we've uh, already we've sort of ahead of uh, the program. We got a lot of these uh, organizations and links and references on our resource document, and we'll make sure to capture any other references that are made. That resource document is available um, on the IHI.org webpages as of tomorrow morning, and uh, or you can email info at IHI.org and make sure you get it. I guess. Can I just can oh, I just add one more that I just remembered that I forgot to yes. put on my own was was all the great work that they've done up at Dartmouth with the Green Book and the clinical microsystems work, which is a, a resource that is so ubiquitous that I even forgot to mention it. Uh, but it's a terrific, very handy resource for people to use. Maybe we could. Uh, maybe I'll I'll quickly then, John. Let me flip back to you for a second. Can you quickly describe what that is? Sure. The Green Book. Uh, well, there are a lot of descriptions, but the Green Book is a collection of uh, tools that have been tested very uh, widely uh, that just are useful for particularly larger organizations and, and teams to uh, redesign care. 
and that's about it. They're just very well tested and very uh, uh, useful. Uh, they work on the principle uh, of so-called microsystems, which basically, to strip away the jargon, means a small group of uh, clinicians, a team, if you will, focused on the patient, usually using uh, some sort of technology to enhance their interaction when they can. Uh, but it's just available and useful. That's all I can say. Okay. Thanks a lot, John. All right. We're going to uh, just about ready to open things up for questions and comments. And I, I'm just going to pick on Karen one more moment. Um, Karen, I was uh, telling you in advance, I was going to ask you, is the patient center medical home kind of the holy grail here? Um, <laughs> every now and then it seems to shift. And uh, as to, maybe we were talking about something else, ACOs. or So is that what we're headed for? Is that what we're looking for in name or certification? Well, I think that's certainly um, an important piece for a lot of practices. So, you know, certification as a medical home, uh, from my perspective, is an important um, it's an important framework that helps practices get organized. It's an important way of, of pointing out kind of the large um, uh, areas where practices may need to do some work on access or or systems for tracking test results or communication uh, and patient-centeredness. I think it's a great way to help practices begin to think about how to organize their journey. But what we are finding, um, and it is certainly my hope, is that people will find that um, more of a rest stop along the way of their ultimate journey towards really providing uh, the kind of care we all would want to see. Um, I think that we, we ran a program this fall where we had 92 people come to Boston to learn intensively about uh, advanced primary care, and we were pretty much expecting them all to be, you know, newbies, people who were just getting started. And I was just so gratified to see that a good third of them were practices that were already at level three medical homes through NCQA and have said, you know, this just got us started. We have so much farther that we want to go. Now they are excited and enthusiastic. So I see it as a, a tool along the way, an important, um, uh, an important um, credential to have, which will help with changing payment systems, et cetera. But I see it as really just beginning to open the can of worms. <laughs> okay, very good. All right, uh, we're going to now open things up for chat. You've got John Wasson, Karen Boudreau, Connie Davis, and Sheila Allison with you. Uh, welcome your questions and comments. And Jesse's just going to quickly remind you uh, how to how to do that. Thanks, Madge. So I just opened up the chat room for everybody, and I'd ask when you are sending your questions or comments in, please make sure to send them to all participants. Uh, and I've got one to start us off. Um, I would say improvement is a team sport, um, and no doubt any less in the office practice um, or primary care. Uh, what does a primary care improvement team look like? And, and more importantly, I think, what is uh, the role of the patient in that team in that process? Interesting. Oh, wow. Okay. So where should we start? A primary care improvement team. Who, who's, who's feeling uh, kind of a burning um, desire who might, might have matched that? Uh, this, she, this is Connie. I can go ahead. start. Mm -hmm. yep. Yeah, and, and John started to describe a little bit some work we um, did in B.C. that's going to be um, growing soon very quickly 
Um, one of, as John described, one of our, our tasks was to understand how to put some patient-centered technology into place in primary care practices. And primary care practices in BC are much like in other parts of the, in, of the country and in, in the U.S. They tend to be very small offices, one to two physicians um, with medical office assistants as the um, other staff member. Very rarely um, do they consist of a very large team at all. Um, and we asked them to find patient advisors to work with them as they were learning from the patients what their experience of care was and also how they were doing with uh, quality measures in care like chronic disease control, um, uh, more preventive issues like seatbelt use, smoking cessation. And so those teams were actually quite small. It would be a physician, the medical office assistant, and a patient uh, voice representing the other people in the practice. So that's one example. Of course, uh, in some of the work with the Indian Health System, we have some very large teams with wonderful access, uh, albeit starved, as the Indian Health System people would tell you, um, access to professionals, social workers, behavioral health, uh, pharmacists, um, excellent team members. And depending on the population, the team that's required uh, to actually care for the population is very different, um, which is a different kind of a team, the clinical team, and then there's the improvement team. Not So there's kind of two different levels of team happening there. I think this question was more about the improvement team. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much, Connie. Anyone want to add to that? This is Karen. I just was going to add yeah. um, that I think one of the key things that you heard in what Connie was saying is that um, the inclusion of really frontline folks um, on the improvement team is very important because like the patients, um, the medical assistants and the receptionists and the, the folks that are coordinating referrals actually have a lot of knowledge and, um, and very practical uh, experience that can lend to the actual improvement. Okay, thank you very much. Um, I want to ask, uh, maybe I'll, I'll go to, to John and uh, ask about, there's a couple of questions coming in uh, about, in so many words, really, delegation. And uh, in the same way we're talking about an improvement team, are we? Is, does all this work continue to stretch and really take advantage of the full capacity of all those involved in a primary care practice, including nurse practitioners, et cetera? Are we, do we still have that on the front burner? Uh, again, Connie's point is critical to emphasize that primary care really does come in two flavors in most countries. Uh, large system primary care often talked about with five or more doctors uh, and smaller uh, office practices that lack a lot of the team members that the larger systems would take for granted. Uh, Dave Lawrence and others at Kaiser make the point that in the larger systems, role models are changing dramatically and should change dramatically. Uh, And uh, the role of the clinician will change because just the work is changing. Uh, In the smaller practices, uh, things have the opportunity to change very rapidly. Uh, that's the most exciting part about it. But on the other hand, it comes very much uh, at the cost of a practice that doesn't have a lot of resources. So in summary, uh, your question is hard to, uh, no one's moving teams to the back burner Mm -hmm. or redefining roles, but everything's uh, 
contextual, really. Okay. Okay. No, I understand that. A um, cu- couple of questions about patients, uh, and I'll start one with one for you, Sheila, which has to do with sort of where does all the training content come from uh, to help patients become effective and um, in active uh, in influencing system design in the way you were suggesting? So, well, at the moment, I think that's a continual work in progress. And uh, there have been several surveys that have gone out to the large actual virtual network at Patient Voices Network, soliciting the patient's feedback on what they're looking uh, for in terms of the kind of um, their, their priorities, in terms of the kind of supports that patients want and need. And some of them, uh, high on the list is a request of what is expected of me in advisory level, what do I need to know to act act in advisory level, and and background information to just understand the healthcare system and the primary care healthcare system. So people are really wanting information and to feel informed when they participate. And of course, communication skills is is, uh, high on the list too. So there's a number of uh, workshops uh, underway in terms of supporting patients. And the other thing that happens along the way while all the, the educational pieces are getting put into place is that whenever a patient is a participant on an advisory committee or whatever forum they may be participating in, a staff member from Patient Voices Network and someone from whether it's the Health Authority or the BC Medical Association or whatever and whoever else is needed sets up a teleconference to support the patient or patients to be able to ask questions about what's expected of them and what they can expect from the uh, forum that they're attending. So that whole support piece around patients uh, is there's the ongoing um, on-the-spot education as well as the background education that's starting to happen. And there's actually a uh, committee right now just beginning to work on uh, a larger uh, a larger picture of the uh, the patient voice and and what uh, the education and skills that are needed to support them thank you very much uh sheila somebody has asking uh maybe karen will ask you they're asking would you include the program of all-inclusive care for the elderly the pace program in the definition of the types of organizations that relate to primary care for patient-centered care Oh, absolutely. You know, I think I think um, one of the important aspects of rethinking primary care is beginning to think about it not only in the context of the care that happens within the four walls of the practice, but what happens with our patients, you know, for the rest of the time that they're outliving their lives. How do they interact with other uh, community organizations and community programs? And how does the practice um, connect with those programs, uh, both sort of what we would say horizontally, sort of across their community, and then vertically within within their healthcare system? So if they're part of or related to a hospital or other organization, Um, I think there's a lot of programs like PACE that provide direct care um, that can be very, very important uh, parts of the new primary care landscape. 
Okay, thank you very much, Karen. And I'm not quite sure what we're hearing bumping along, but we'll look look into it. Um, I'd like to also, uh, and a question has come in, sort of, uh, John, you're making, you know, your your comment about two flavors, and uh, somebody has asked a little bit about uh, getting smaller practices more on board uh, with the changes and the degree to which they are indeed involved in some of the initiatives. Do you have some thoughts on that? Yeah, this is John. I wanted to comment on that. Uh, what, I, If it's possible, I would just post a paper tomorrow called Patients Use the Internet to Enter the Medical Home, showing what the smaller practices are capable of doing. Okay. Uh, and also, again, remind people to look at idealmedicalhome.org. The, the real point that I'd like people to go home with uh, out of today is that primary care is strapped, primary care is stressed, primary care is difficult, but it's also a lot of fun. And that when practices start leveraging actual engagement of patients in changing practice, not just sitting on committees, and I saw one comment coming in about we're having trouble finding a pool of patients. Uh, you don't really have trouble finding a pool of patients if you think of particular projects because it's time limited and fun for them and fun for the practice. So in small practices and larger practices, I think the breakthrough innovation that I'm excited about, and again, I've been at this for a long time like many on the phone, is the new way of engaging patients in actual projects rather than sitting on committees or the sidelines because, frankly, everyone's too busy otherwise to do it. Mm-hmm. Okay, thank you very much. So John's offering uh, about a paper, so I'm going to ask that, John, that you email that to me, and then uh, we'll work it through our system. So everyone uh, will make sure that it's available uh, through our resource document, which is available to you tomorrow. Um, I, I guess I want to... Um, Maybe I'll I'll just kind of toss something back uh, to Karen, which is uh, I I think that John <laughs> John just said that primary care can be fun, and um, I I I have no doubt that's the case. Uh, and uh, where where do you think that people are are actually starting to experience that right now? And how? Well, you know, that's a great question, um, and I would wholeheartedly agree with John, and I, I do continue to practice a half a day a week um, here in Boston, and as challenging as it is, and I take care of a, a very um, diverse and challenged population, um, I can't imagine not doing it because it is just, uh, it is so rewarding and frustrating and terrific all at the same time. Um, you know, I think I've always thought that when you're practicing primary care that, that in spite of all of the, um, all of the challenges, the, the one moment in the afternoon where the lights go on for somebody or you make that connection with people or uh, something that you've tried either with them as a a clinical intervention or something you've tried with your team, you think, yes, this is why we're doing it. And and I think that's where the enjoyment comes from. And I as I, I listen to Sheila and Connie and John and put together those pieces of, of 
that reward can happen not just in a clinical interaction, but in actually making the process of care work better um, and increasing the confidence in our patients that our patients have that they can do what they need to do to manage their own health. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, let, thank you, Karen. Sheila, let me go back to you for a moment, and I'm just thinking, because I, I see there's a lot of comments. People want to uh, find out more, uh, you know, how, how patients can become more involved. Can you give us an example of something that perhaps has gone on through your work, through Patient Voices, that you think has sort of changed, changed something at a, at a primary care practice? maybe got to that confidence uh, building that John was talking about before, just to sort of illustrate what we mean uh, by sort of shifting uh, sort of things around and, and the partnership uh, through any particular chronic health problem or whatever you'd like. Well, and I appreciate that comment John made because I think it, it is very important, too, when patients are participating, they can feel that they're accomplishing something, and that's why short-term projects are, are, are a good idea as well because I think patients are no longer something that health, health professionals do something for. It's not, they do something with them. And I think that, that we all need to harness the energy of patients. And I think a good example is the program I mentioned in my bio that Patient Voices Network has initiated, with, which is talking with your doctor and other health professionals. And this is a pilot project that's just uh, just completing now, but we'll move on, I'm sure, where eight patient facilitators were trained to run these, t- these one-and-a-half to two-hour workshops for patients, giving them the opportunity to learn how to use a really organized way of uh, and taking responsibility and being active participants in their own health care when they go to see their, their family physician. And um, I've, I've uh, done three workshops now. I have another one coming up. We're just continuing on even though the pilot is over. And it has tremendous opportunities for members of the public to learn that they can take responsibility for their own health and just what their role is. We've had an extremely good response from the people in the groups where we, te- we help them learn, and it's a very interactive what their responsibility is in visiting their family physician and building the relationship. And it's, um, my husband actually has several chronic conditions and he's been using this framework in his visit with his doctor and now has involved, shared the whole information with his doctor and his doctor is giving us feedback on how the program is working. And um, it's one way where patients are actually doing some of the work it's benefiting the patients that they, they teach and it's benefiting the physicians in their office and making a difference. And it's interesting because we actually had a retired physician in one of the workshops we did last week and he said at the end of the workshop, wow, where was this when I was practicing? It would have been so helpful for me to have informed patients to, uh, to communicate with in this way. So, Sheila, that all sounds wonderful. Uh, if folks wanted to learn more about that, uh, just to kind of either get at uh, kind of what the training looks like or the results or the progress, is there a particular place uh, they could uh, direct their attention to? And if you sort of tell me, we'll, we'll listen and we'll also make sure to provide the, that linkage. 
yes, I think that the contact is Impact BC or, or Patient Voices okay. uh, Network, uh, and I imagine you probably have those resources for Yes, your- okay, so we can sort of look look for that. Oops, and there goes Connie putting it right in there. Um, so thank you, thank you. I want to uh, just um, I, maybe I'll, I'll ask you, John. Uh, at the very beginning, uh, you spoke about uh, sort of some of the things that aren't necessarily all in place. Uh, we're not things are not necessarily all lined up in the right direction in terms of uh, you know all the underlying factors that could enhance all these efforts. So I want to just ask you about one, which is um, is there. Uh, I would imagine that some folks are still tempted to say, well, until there's some changes with payment reform, uh, better pay, et cetera, uh, you know, other kinds of things uh, that will make this all work out better financially, uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure, you know, I can kind of stay in this. And um, I guess I'd love to hear you say, what do you think the best argument is to stay in it? Well, obviously, I'm biased. The best argument is is fun, but you can't put you know meat on the table with just fun. If if a practice is really in trouble uh, financially, uh, the ideal medical uh, practices project looked a lot at reduction of overhead. So you might look at idealmedicalpractices.org. That's one. way to uh, make practice more financially viable. Uh, I'm serving, and and many others uh, perhaps on the phone are serving right now on a number of committees at federal and other levels that are trying very hard to bring the patient's voice in in uh, uh, in, in more than a cursory way and change the reimbursement in a meaningful way. Uh, I'm hopeful that there will be some change, but um, we all can read the newspapers, (laughs) and it's a difficult slug. So I I can only say that uh, I'm old enough to know there was a shortage of primary care in the early 70s when I was starting uh, in practice, and we're there again, and we got out of it last time, and hopefully we'll get out of it this time. Mm-hmm. Thanks, John. Karen, uh, can, we haven't even mentioned, or we barely touched upon, uh, maybe a little bit with regional uh, help there uh, with the extension centers. What about the electronic health record, uh, and to what extent that starts to maybe, uh, as people get really uh, get into this, that begins to maybe uh, tip the scales? In the best sense. Right. I, you know, I think that is a, it's a great point. And I think um, similar to medical home certification, um, uh, there's a balance between the tremendous um, benefits that can come from having connected uh, electronic systems that can take care of some of the, um, the drudgery of remembering who needs what when, uh, who has had what done, um, uh, you know what are the what are the what is the long term history on this patient so that uh, practices and clinicians don't have to rely on their own memory to do that and that patients can interact with them through patient gateways or or, or other ways of, of interacting through the electronic health records so there's tremendous benefit there the risk of course is that it will become um, yet another milestone to achieve 
for the sake of achieving it or for the sake of accessing the funding that's available through meaningful use. And I think the practices that get the most out of um, bringing on an EHR are the ones who are able to um, really work on their own way of doing things, improving their processes and bringing the EHR into that um, with the with the with the long-term view of really capitalizing on its benefits for enhanced communication and improved quality of care. Mm -hmm. um, I worry about the practices that, that, um, that are looking for plug-and-play, um, uh, and I think they won't ultimately get the most out of it that they can. Okay, thanks a lot. Uh, anybody else want to say anything related to uh, electronic health records? <laughs> it's Connie, and I, I, I think too. I think it's really true. And John's spoken quite eloquently, eloquently about this. That in most of us know that the electronic records are just automating a system that really wasn't geared around what patients. Um, need or want or how to really support patients in, in care. And, you know, with um, primary care now, we're finding the things we need to pay attention to are support for behavior change, starting to address social issues and income issues, things that haven't traditionally been looked on as part of, of health care but make a huge difference. So until we have you know, medical records that have a lot of transparency that actually suit patients' needs. We're only just at the very beginning of that journey. Okay, thanks very much. Well, I think that, uh, you know, I, we're going to come back to all of this, and I think that uh, part of what we're talking about is kind of the the birth, although it's been going on for a while in some aspects and perhaps in some very important pockets of Canada as well, and, and slowly here in the U.S. in terms of greater patient involvement and sort of changing everything in terms including our language and, uh, you know, who should be at the table uh, talking about any of this. Uh, I want to just briefly message, excuse me, mention that on Tuesday, April 5th from 2 to 3 p.m. Eastern Time, there's a free webinar you might want to check out, uh, information on IHI.org. Uh, Andrea Capsonell and the Center to Advance Palliative Care Director Diane Meyer are going to be on uh, talking about really some very, very interesting things that are going on in terms of effective palliative care, and we hope you'll check that out. All right, I am about to do all my kind of sign-off stuff. Uh, I think the chat today has been especially uh, vibrant. I really appreciate the fact that a lot of you spoke with one another, uh, which is great. That's kind of the idea here. Think of it as a living room, and not everybody has to just be focused uh, at the front of the room at the, at the same time. Uh, anybody have a, a final parting shot? Uh, John, uh, got any Anything, uh, sort of, you, you started us off, anything you want to leave us with? Just a positive, uh, upbeat feeling. A positive? Uh, patients, engage patients, engage patients, engage patients. Okay, all right. Well, that's something to, to think about, uh, folks. I'll second that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think anybody's probably going to disagree. Uh, thank you all, our uh, guests today, uh, our uh, our panelists, experts, uh, all of you who joined, several hundred of you were on, and I hope many more of you will tell uh, others to listen. You can download uh, the audio tomorrow. It will be available, along again with the resource document and promise 
us also to uh, share the paper that John Wasson mentioned. Uh, next up on WIHI April 7th, we're going to uh, kind of revisit uh, effective crisis management with Jim Conway, who is the co-author of a very, very uh, powerful report uh, on kind of crisis management in the event of a serious adverse event. And uh, we've got a really interesting panel of folks who really put that report uh, to use uh, with some serious issues over the past year. And we're going to find out exactly what they learned along the way. There's information about that on the website right now, and you can enroll uh, if you'd like. Again, check out the website. By tomorrow morning, you'll see an audio download of this program. It will also be on iTunes. There's a resource document. We'll capture it all. When you get off the program today, you can download any of the slides. You can download the chat. If you join by phone today, email us at info at IHI.org, and we'll make sure you get the same materials. And we do invite you, please, to fill out a survey that you'll also see pop up when you um, log off. Uh, We really want to know what you think, how we can improve, and we'd love to know if actually anyone was tuned in to the program with you at your same location. The people who make WIHI possible are Mike Sweeney, Jesse McCall, Alan Olison, Jane Rossner, Val Weber, Matt Morse, and Vicki Minden. We have this nice music that opens and closes the show by Aaron Flanders and Miguel Sapasoa. Those are original compositions. We really appreciate your tuning in. It's my privilege to host a program that's about spirited learning and improving patient care most of all. For the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, I'm Madge Kaplan. Good day. Thank you.